Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of Epistemic Unruliness. This is actually our first episode of 2017. I'm a little embarrassed to say that, Mm, but it's been very busy. I will update you all, friends, um, a little bit here. I'm in the middle of application season, or maybe not the middle, um, coming towards, you know, I'm rounding third base, I think, of application season, but I've been applying for dissertation completion fellowships, um, and I've had several interviews, and I don't know what's happening with all that right now as I talk to you on February 17th, but it has been, um, consuming of my attentions in a way that's made it hard for me to to get to epistemic unruliness episodes um but i'm here today with you we are together in this cyberspace no matter what day you're actually listening to um this podcast it is always the now and so here we are um today's episode uh, i'm gonna get all of the levity out as much as possible um right now because today's episode is not going to be a pleasant topic of conversation Um, I think that we have, you know, we've spoke at the end of 2016, we did a couple episodes and when I did the episode at the, um, American Studies Association annual meeting, um, we were talking about the impending age of Donald Trump and, and just kinds of mobilizations that might be necessary and things that we would need to start to address as leftists, as radicals, as progressives of various sorts and now that we are about three weeks four weeks um in not even three weeks is so well no it's about a month in to donald trump actually being the president of the united states he has rained down a dizzying hail of executive orders at us over the last few weeks many of which are not even fully implementable many of which are so shoddily thrown together, right? That like the people who are tasked with enforcing them don't even know how to enforce them. And so there's just a, there's a mess of lots of things, right? I don't need to update you all on the state of affairs in the United States and in the globe right now. But all that being said, um, one of the first urgencies that we knew um, for months and months and months before Donald Trump was ever elected was his xenophobia and his pledge to, to, to end the immigration problem. I don't even know how to, I'm trying to say this in more, you know, learned or more complex ways than what he does, but he just says, what he's going to build a wall. He's going to get all the illegal immigrants out of the country, blah, blah, blah. Right. It's very simplistic narrative, but he's been taking orders you know, taking action and signing executive orders to do just that. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've had a country where if you are paying attention to this issue or if you are living in an undocumented community or if you are a green card member, right, between the Muslim ban, between the ICE raids, I mean, like, there's already been chaos unleashed on certain sectors of the American populace of our, of our, of our communities, right? And so in that, in, in that hope, uh, in the hope of making this podcast a space of resistance within the broader movement of resistance, today's epistemic unruliness is going to deal very directly and square, um, head on with the issue of immigration and Donald Trump's executive orders around them and the, the various urgencies that they, they have put into, um, place. So when we come back, we will have Barbara Sostaita, who is going to talk to us about the urgencies of the immigration situation as they are unfolding. All right. It is my pleasure to welcome to the show Barbara Sostaita. Barbara is a doctoral student in religious studies at the University of North Carolina, where she researches Latinx migrant faith practices and communities 
She is also a columnist at feministing.com. Did I pronounce that right? Yes. Okay. I've never actually said that out loud. So feministing.com and a local organizer. Bardra, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, James. Um, Thank you for coming. I should also say, disclosure, Bardra is one of my good friends, too. Um, I've had friends and colleagues and whatnot on the show before. So here's another one to add to the always already universe. (laughs) So we have a sober um, conversation ahead of us today because we're going to be talking about immigration and Donald Trump and what's going on right now and activism and ways to engage. Um, But why don't you give us a kind of recap? Because there's been a lot going on of late. I should like we should maybe mention the today's Friday, the 17th. This will probably be released next week. So just so people know where we are because with Donald Trump every day, there's something new going on. So we're speaking on Friday, the 17th. So you can kind of like line up our conversation <laughs> to the events. Um, all right. Executive orders, raids, now national yeah. guard, possibly. Yeah. So we're like, what, a month into the new administration and we've already seen the Muslim ban. Right. So seven Muslim majority countries, citizens and green card holders from those countries were banned. So the ban was struck down by a federal court. Um, The Justice Department announced it's not going to fight for the order, but Trump announced he's going to file a revised travel ban instead. So that's where we stand on the Muslim ban. Right. We have immigration enforcement, um, the executive order he released January 25th, that included a lot of different points. We had the building the border wall that, oh, look, like U.S. citizens are going to pay for um, hiring of 5000 additional Border Patrol agents, tripling the number of immigration enforcement officers, more detention centers. Um, he reinstated the secure communities program. So that's a program where local police officers are empowered to work with ICE, so immigration enforcement officials. Um, and I just ask a clarification. ICE officials are not the same thing exactly as Border Patrol, or they are? They're not. Okay. So Border Patrol is under Immigration and Customs Enforcement. So Border Patrol is kind of like a subsection of ICE right. uh, and the Department of Homeland Security, DHS. So they're all... They're all connected right. and not necessarily the same thing. Um, so, yeah, so something that has been overlooked, too, is that this week Trump signed three executive orders related to police militarization. So one of the orders creates this task force on crime reduction and public safety. So basically that's targeting immigrants specifically. So what we're seeing is not only increased militarization at the border and these raids, which I'm sure we'll talk about extensively here, but we're also seeing the this language of public safety, right, and police Mm -hmm. protection to justify the criminalization of black and brown communities. So Trump is basically giving local police more power to work with ICE to detain immigrants and to conduct raids. And so this is this is a Black Lives Matter issue. This is an immigrant rights issue. And this is a women's rights issue. A trans woman was detained this week when she went to seek a court order against her abuser. And instead, ICE detained her. So yeah, like, I heard that story. Yeah, these Some of these ICE stories this week have been very unsettling because it has this... It, it feels like there's a secret police force that's, like, starting to... Well, they're not secret, right? We know who, exactly who they are. But, like, they've been showing up ICE raids. I saw another story. So you mentioned the story of a woman who was um, filing a, a complaint against her boyfriend, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for assault. And he kind of ratted her out. And ICE knew that she was going to be there. Um, I heard a story yesterday about a homeless shelter or a food kitchen at a church where ICE, I think this might have been, I forget where it exactly was now, um, so I won't even try to guess, but it was somewhere in the United States and the AP was reporting it, um, that ICE was waiting across the street because they knew that this homeless shelter catered to an undocumented community and that as long as they were inside the shelter, the people were fine, right, because the church is a sanctuary. 
but and I, it's like a very sensitive area. I, there's a there's a term that ICE has come up with um, that goes back to the Obama administration. Sensitive areas they don't go into, and so the homeless shelter is not explicitly a church, but it's a it's a sensitive area. But ICE was waiting across the street for these people to come out, right? So there are ways that now ICE is starting to just become a a sort of like a secret service in 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 our communities and like so what was that act that you mentioned that trump was empowering local police the something community act right so yeah so this is called the task force on crime reduction and public safety so like i mentioned he's just using this language of like public safety and furthering this narrative that all immigrants are criminals right like we are always already criminal, right? To kind of riff off your the title of your podcast, the criminalization of immigrants mm. is something that's even becoming more like prevalent than before, right? So Trump is creating this victims advocacy office for victims of crimes supposedly committed by undocumented immigrants. So he's literally publishing this list of crimes that supposedly undocumented immigrants committed, right? Which could be a crime as like, I've gotten a reckless driving ticket before. I've gone 15 miles over the <laughs> speed limit. That could go into a victim's advocacy office, right? So like he's creating this environment where we are labeled as criminals by virtue of our existing in this country. So yeah, that's the situation now. I also like want to mention like, this isn't new for us. Obama, like, mm. hashtag deporter in chief, right? Like, he deported more immigrants than any other president before him. And we've been fighting this struggle. Like, ICE, like, a few years ago, um, was luring people out of churches by, like, fake texting them from fake phone numbers mm. that, like, their friend was outside. Or, hey, we have a delivery for you. Like, leave the church, right? Because the church is this sensitive area. Right. So you have to get them out of there. So ICE has the power to lie. Like part of ICE being ICE is they are able to lie and that's not an issue. It's just part of their job. So they can trick people. They can like do whatever they need to do to hunt us down, basically. And as you said, this is something that had already been going on under the Obama administration. Um, right. Like there now the Obama administration had Obama had signed some executive orders for like regarding DACA students, which we'll get to in a second. So like there was, there were like the, on the surface or there'd be moments, there are these moments in these, mo you know, these little, these little areas where the Obama administration seemed to at least signal that they cared about immigration reform. And then on other, on the other side, like the backside, they were sending ICE out to do raids on like the north side of Atlanta and whatnot. Cause I've done research around immigration in the Atlanta area. And I like, they've been running these raids since 2014, 2015, um, in that area. So like, you're right. This isn't anything new. It's just that now when you have the kind of chaotic leadership that is like explicitly xenophobic and racist of Donald Trump, all of the un like the untidied up business of the Obama administration, you know, all the mess that he kind of left undone um, is there now to be exploited and taken to an extreme. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, I think you're, you're like right on point, right? So like Trump is creating this environment where all immigrants are feeling targeted. Like there's not like this feeling that, Oh, I'm a DACA recipient. So I'm going to be okay. Or, I'm one of like, I have a green card and I'm okay. Like he is, he was not letting green card holders back <laughs> into the country. So like all of us are in this headspace where we could be next. And what Obama was doing was very explicitly targeting certain communities. So like, for instance, last January, so like one year ago, DHS announced that it was um, conducting raids targeting Central American refugees. And they were mostly women and children. So like December, late December, 2015, they say, hey, we're going to start January by going after these people. Mm. So obviously like super like messed up, but it was Central American refugees. Now it's green card holders, right. DACA recipients, like 
people who have been here for 21 years, like Guadalupe Garcia de Rayos, right? She like, she went to an ICE checkpoint, uh, an ICE meeting every single year, like a scheduled meeting every single year. This year, all of a sudden, they detain her when she goes to her regularly scheduled meeting. So it's just this chaos where we don't know what's coming next. Mm. We don't know if we're next. Like, we don't know what's next. So it's right. different. And speaking about, like, what might possibly be next, I saw this morning the AP broke a story about a draft executive order that was talking about Trump considering deploying or activating National Guard troops to also (laughs) help with rounding up illegal immigrants in the country, undocumented immigrants. I... There are so many different policing agencies now, you know, like, so... That's why I was asking you earlier about the difference between Border Patrol agents and ICE agents and then, like, the local police departments being authorized. Now you possibly might have the National Guard as well. And this is just a police state issue. I I think whether or not they're coming for citizens, citizens need to – do citizens of this country want four, five, six different police forces hunting around looking for non-citizens? Like – this isn't this is an issue that is affecting a small group of people. There's a small group of people who are the ones who are actually on the line. But this is a problem that is going to spill out, I think. I don't think most Americans want a, a, mil, a, mili, a militar, militarized country. Absolutely not. And we know this is a racialized issue. We know, like, we already know, like, killer cops are murdering black people every single day. We know that there's an idea in their heads of who is an immigrant. What does an immigrant look like? who fits the category of a racialized, like, undocumented immigrant. Mm-hmm. So, like, this this is going to have spillover effect. And these agencies that are all working together are, create, are going to create an environment where anyone who looks not like a non-citizen is a target. Right, which I was going to say, I'm, I'm waiting to find out and hear a story of, you know, a Swedish or Irish immigrant who's being detained that's, probably not going to happen though right i saw i saw uh when my friends tweeted yesterday yesterday was a day without immigrants so we did not go to work school spend any money and this this tweet was like yo i went to work today and i saw a whole bunch of europeans there i thought it was a day without immigrants Hmm. right so who is an immigrant right and who has the immigrant solidarity right like the people who want to continue to to create solidarity with other immigrants um, or the people who can easily slip into looking as if they've already been part of the citizenry here, right? Right. Um, tell me more about the, the Day Without Immigrants yesterday and the strike, the national yeah. strike. So um, yesterday was a Day Without Immigrants. So immigrants, allies, citizens, non-citizens, we gather together in solidarity with one another Shout out to the black community. I saw so many black people standing in solidarity with us yesterday at our rally um, in Durham, North Carolina, right? Like mm. a lot of people, like we're talking, understand that the increased militarization of our police is a black and brown issue, and we've got to work together. So I saw I saw a lot of black people showing up for us yesterday. Um, we did not go to school. We did not go to work. We um, did not spend any money yesterday, and this was a this was done before. This has been done before during the Bush administration um, when the immigration reform bill was proposed was the first day without immigrants. So yesterday, mm. I think only in Charlotte, North Carolina, there are about ten thousand people who showed up to march. So we had solidarity marches. Businesses were closed down. Um, people came out and really said, like, this country cannot function without us. You are lucky it's only one day without right. immigrants. And, like, that kind of movement, the, all these various movements today, like, that. now that you've had that kind of mobilization again, uh, it's going to be easier to, to, like, mobilize that once again, if you, you know, if need be. And I would love to see a lot more strikages happening across this country because I feel like, the only way to really get attention is to like stick it to capitalism it's on some way you know so if you can somehow become disruptive to making money then you get you know a little bit more attention and 
I mean, without the immigrants in this country who are the backbone of our underground labor and our underground economy, um, yeah, you know. And, like, there's so much to say about um, – this is kind of off to the side, and we won't dig into this because I want to keep going into some of these more urgent issues. But just as a note, right, I think we need to – have a broader kind of understanding of these issues because there are a lot of free market capitalists like the Koch brothers who are also not happy with these kinds of immigration orders and whatnot. Right. And like, so I think it's important that right now we are all on the same side as far as being urgent against these kinds of raids and trying to push for some kind of immigration reform. But just as a keep your eye open and like, don't trust everyone who says they want open borders because there are some people who want open borders just so that they can keep working people to $3 an hour, not even under the table. And like, I'm not on the same side as the Koch brothers. All right. I don't want open borders for the same reasons as the Koch brothers. And you know, like even furthering that, right? Like our value as immigrants is not determined by our product, our productivity. Like, my worth is not because I'm a college graduate and a PhD student who happens to be an immigrant, right? Like this just sets up also right. these respectability politics where like, I, I'm not gonna advocate for like immigrant immigration reform because Steve Jobs like was the son of immigrants. <laughs> or, right, right. Or, those reasons are not, those th- those are the reasons that keep getting thrown around, but those are reasons that just like right, they only you're only as valuable as as you are right now into the system, and it's not a value that's rooted like outside of the market somewhere. Right. So I you mentioned we've mentioned DACA a few times, and especially for our listeners, we have a lot of academics of all ranks who listen to this um, podcast from undergrads to. Or at undergrads who are contemplating if they want to go to grad school, we get those emails a lot. And grad students and you know people who are in the in the academy as professors and instructors. And so DACA might be something that people have been hearing a lot about. That there's a lot of anxiety about on campuses. There have been I know University of Michigan recently refused um, or stated they will refuse to release information to President Trump related to DACA students. So what is DACA? So DACA is deferred action. Um, So basically what DACA offers, um, people who meet the qualifications, and these are very extensive like qualifications. Um, You have to have either served in the military, you have to be a student, you have to be enrolled in a college or university could be a community college, but you have to be a student or have served in the military. Um, About 665,000 people have benefited from DACA. Um, And basically what it does is it gives you a valid work permit and it prevents you from the threat of deportation. So while it's not legal status, it it is legal status, but it's not a path to citizenship. Mm. It's not amnesty. It's protection from deportation and a driver's license and work permit. So it gives people a sense of stability. It gives people a sense of at least temporary safety. And that's what people with DACA have felt since they received DACA um, is now I can actually have a job. I have a valid social security number. I can drive without fear. I have a driver's license. I have valid identification. I can like, at least for the time being, no, I'm not going to be deported. I'm not a target. And that's changing now, as we see with Daniel Ramirez, Mm. a DACA recipient who was detained by ICE and who is now suing the federal government because he is protected. He has this legal status. Which that's, it's just, that story is just mind boggling to me, but it just goes to show you that like fascism and these kinds of fascistic, you know, policies and policing they don't care about rule, you know, like rules and, you know, regulations and policies don't matter when you're dealing with a kind of fascist overtake of power. Right. Um, so, right. So DACA, let me back up, I guess, a bit. So DACA is like it's student, it's or it's people who were brought to the United States as children. Right. Like that's the kind of, I guess, as far as Obama could go, because you know, where the Republicans will want to blame criminality on all undocumented 
um, people in this country, right? I guess you could at least say, well, like, children who don't have a say one way or the other, like, they didn't actually choose to break the law to come here as children. And so then, you know, I suppose DACA was the best kind of compromise. And that was just an executive order, too, though, right? Or is DACA actual legislation? No, DACA is just an executive order, which is why we're so afraid that with the simple, like, Trump wouldn't have to go through the legislature to overturn DACA. Right. And I guess the example of Danielle Ramirez being arrested or being detained, at least, um, when ICE came to arrest his father, they were like, well, you don't, you're not a citizen. You weren't born here. So we're taking you too." even though he told them and they should know, right? ICE should know the DACA exemption. But here are ICE agents who I guess feel empowered by their new executive that they don't even have to follow. If they choose to on the spot, they don't have to follow those rules either. Right. And this is what we talked about earlier, right? It's the racialization of immigrants. If you look like you're undocumented, (sighs) you'll be taken too. Like, it's all about who looks undocumented. Oh, you're like, we are assuming that you too are undocumented. Right. So honestly, like what I said earlier, none of us are safe. And that's the message they're trying to send out. Daniel Ramirez, like he had DACA, but we still, we still got him. So like watching mm. that. Right. And so like what's been going on on college campuses around this issue. Um, and I know you were involved in some covert activism or some kind of journalism, we'll say like radical journalism. Um, tell us, tell me what you did and how that relates to the wider issue. Yeah, so um, I, let me back up for a second. So I'm at the University of North Carolina. It's part of the UNC system. So 17 universities across the state of North Carolina. We have a president of the system, Margaret Spellings. She was the education secretary under Bush. Um, If you've heard of No Child Left Behind, that was her. (laughs) Read her out. Let us know who she is. (laughs) Um, Right, but like we know who she is, but on the flip side, she sends out this memo to the to her board. It's called the Board of Governors. They like run this run this show, saying that she's been traveling the state, that she has met a lot of undocumented students. She is impressed with us. She wants to support and help us. And even though, like, the Board of Governors cannot, like, change federal policy, they should do everything in their power to help us out. So Mm. you can imagine my surprise when I read this memo, but she's been, like, silent in public. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, I have a green card, but students with DACA, like, they are freaked out. Right. Students from mixed status families, so children, citizens, parents undocumented, or one parent undocumented, one parent um, citizen, right? Like mixed status families, sure, I'm on campus and I'm protected because I'm a citizen, but what about my parents? Who am I going to go home to during breaks? Who, like, these students are scared as they should be. So I get this memo and I start asking myself, if she is so like unapologetically like supporting us in emails, why isn't she doing the same thing in public? Why isn't she making these sentiments known? Right. Like we all need to know this. Right. We feel so strongly about this. Like, cause there's no time to wait to be like, when are you going to wait to speak out when, when the federal government is demanding that UNC release all the data on their undocumented student population? Right. You know, right. No, the time is now. So anyways, I I leaked it. I, <laughs> I sent it out to the campus newspaper, the Daily Tar Heel. Um, yeah, I, I wrote her an open letter and I have a meeting with her this week. So we're going to sit down and we're going to chat. All right. (laughs) You know, leaking has been the way of politics over the last like 18 months or so, two months maybe, or two years or so going all the way back to WikiLeaks and stuff. But like, I, this is like the new way, right? Because if there, there isn't a whole lot else, um, or let me say it this way, I guess in a 21st century cyber world, right? Activism has to take place in both the real streets and the cyber streets and like leaking and hacking, not that you hacked, but like all those kinds of tactics are, are starting to look more 
um, like more ways to go, I think, as far as like holding people's feet to the fire and making public officials because UNC is a public university, right? So she's a public official. So be on public record, right? Be on public record for public problems. Absolutely. And when shit goes down, like people need to know, like, let's point fingers. Right. Who are we going to go? Who is going to answer to us? And she, she's that person, right? And leaking, that's how we know. So with DACA, Trump hasn't touched DACA yet. I think he's a bit scared to, to be honest, because of our political will as undocumented or formerly undocumented um, students. But there was a draft executive order that was leaked. It's called Ending Unconstitutional Executive Amnesty. So it... It, although, like I mentioned before, DACA isn't amnesty. A, a executive order that would end DACA was leaked. So mm-hmm. what's really scary is DACA recipients have turned over their information to the government. The government has their fingerprints, their home addresses, all of their identifying information. So these students are really vulnerable right now. And, that, and if that were to just like a, a signature today could undo that. Absolutely. I know that here at the College of William and Mary, we've <laughs> the president released a statement that basically said we, you know, we support our international students because you're a member of the community, you know, here at William and Mary, but we're, you know, we're going to try to do our best to protect you, and we're looking into the executive orders, and you know, it was just a very there was no promise, no guarantee of anything on the back end, right? Like if anything, if push comes to shove, what will the college of William and Mary do? I have no idea. And so we had been working, I've been working with some of the students in the Latin American student union here to, because we have a Catholic homeless shelter. That's like a temporary homeless shelter and a food kitchen on campus. Um, But now with the problem of ice being able to just like, you know, like if ice wants to wait outside across the street, for people who are going to that homeless shelter or if DACA students were to, you know, if something were to go down and DACA students were to go to that shelter, I don't know. But these are the kinds of like strange conversations that I think are taking place in various, um, whether it's in churches, on campuses, in cities, um, the sanctuary or the new sanctuary movement now that it's come back around again, the original sanctuary movement emerged in the 1980s, um, under Ronald Reagan, like against Ronald Reagan, I should say, not like he wasn't spearheading <laughs> sanctuary, but he was actually, um, they were rounding up Central American immigrants at that time due to civil wars, like from El Salvador. And um, so the sanctuary movement in the 80s emerged, but then they, there was a lot of crackdowns. There were some high profile law cases where people were like white um, you know, reverends and church officials who, you know, like mostly Quakers and whatnot, were being arrested because they were performing civil disobedience. Um, and so I, I think the new sanctuary movement, right, has already learned the lessons from the '80s and is like ready to go. And and there is a growing kind of underground. They, you know, comparing themselves to a kind of underground railroad type understanding that, like, we might very soon have to find ourselves in a situation where we're going to need established safe places for people to go. If you have a National Guard and local police, and I know here in the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, there was a bill that came up in the House, or like it was in the House and the State Senate, that would have authorized teachers in public schools and universities, public universities, to have to comply with giving over information about undocumented students as well. So it's not even just a federal thing. There are states that are trying to marshal everyone who is somehow publicly, you know, either licensed. So if you're like a public, if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a public school teacher in some states, you're going to find yourself having this choice too, that if they come to you asking you, we need to know who you're dealing with. Are you going to give that information over? Or are you going to like be part of a resistance movement that helps hide people, right? And it's so ridiculous to sound like we're making comparisons to the Underground Railroad or to the Holocaust, but we are, right? I don't have any other examples recently that I think people would understand well enough to kind of get them in the mindset of what 
we might need to be doing and what people are already doing right now. Like every time I see a new tweet or something about raids that are breaking out, every time raids are happening today, when ICE is going to raid somewhere, there's a social media like AP bulletin that goes out, right? Everyone is like scrambling. And I saw someone yesterday in Denver was of telling people to avoid certain intersections because they saw ICE in the neighborhood. And so this is bad. Yeah. And this is the new resistance, right? Trump's executive orders cannot be effective if we refuse to comply. If we say we're not going to give you information, we're going to shelter people, we are going to extend sanctuary, it's not going to work. It's not going to work if we say no. Like, if the resistance is strong enough, and if we build these networks where we are sheltering people, we are doing the work that the government should be doing. And I think... There's been a lot of like different definitions of sanctuary being thrown around, right? Like the sanctuary movement that you're referencing, sanctuary campuses, mm-hmm. there's sanctuary cities. So there's a lot of different um, types of sanctuary. And I think they all get conflated sometimes or we have this understanding of sanctuary as what you're what you're saying, right? Like people seeking sanctuary in churches and churches taking them in like physically, literally right. taking them in and housing them. But there's also a lot of other ways to extend sanctuary. So, for instance, there's a lot of talk about sanctuary cities, right? Donald Trump wants to defund sanctuary cities. There are are a few states where sanctuary cities have been deemed illegal. So sanctuary city basically means local police won't detain non-citizens on the federal government's behalf. Mm. So, for instance, New York City, like New York City is a sanctuary city. But people are still getting detained and deported in New York. So let's not, like, I know a lot of people are like, sanctuary cities, like, hold up. Because people are still getting deported. They're still being taken in sanctuary cities. So that's actually really important that, like, the sanctuary cities are only, that only applies to local police that it's under the city jurisdiction. Because I guess in in some of those cities, I don't know how it counts for the, like, cities on the coast, but I imagine then that they're technically under border patrol. Right, so New York City, because it's an international port, probably could have border patrol agents. I think it's like within a hundred miles of the border, and the border is very loosely defined. So, like San Francisco too, right? A city that's on a on the ocean can be a sanctuary city, but still is technically considered on the border, and so you can have federal agents. Right, and so there's there's this move towards expanded sanctuary, and if people are interested, Mi Gente is doing a lot of this work, but. What happens to a lot of people is they're arrested, right? Particularly, like, let's say for offenses like drug-related offenses or um, driving under the influence, right? Like a DUI, right? Or any any offense that they can be arrested for. That's when they're funneled to ICE. So there's this move for expanded sanctuary to include decriminalization mm. and the reduction of arrests, Right or um, eliminating the use of local and state gang databases. A lot of people being taken have been affiliated with gangs in the past. So this move towards decriminalization and kind of like reducing arrests, right? Like reducing policing, that's part of expanded sanctuary. Because what happens to a lot of people is they're arrested and then that's when they get funneled through ICE and eventually deported. Right. So expanded sanctuary there means Let's find let's find the root cause of the problem. Like, let's not just refuse to work with ICE, but let's reform the way that we police our communities. Let's like stop the over policing of brown and black communities, because that's where a lot of the problems come from. Right. Yeah. Just a general problem of over policing, too. Right. Um, So before we're almost finished now, but before we wrap this up, I want to have you. I guess, like, talk a little bit, I guess, about... You've mentioned that you have a green card. Um, You've lived in the United States as an undocumented member or, you know, as an in an undocumented family and, like, what that is like. So if you just want to... I saw your sign at the strike yesterday. If you want to tell us what your sign said, and maybe we'll post a picture of the sign um, along with this uh, podcast episode on our website, too. Yeah, so my family came to this country when I was a kid. Um, and we were on a tourist visa. So not everyone, by the way, not everyone who comes undocumented comes through the border. So it's like, not, that's a myth. Um, you mean so the wall won't stop everyone? <laughs> no, what? Shocker. 
plot twist. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so we came on the tourist visa, overstayed the visa. Um, I now have a green card, but that was a really expensive and lengthy process. So for the majority of my life, I've been undocumented. And that's why I'm advocating so, so much for, for these issues um, and for my people, because it's not, it's not one, it's not possible for everyone to find a path to legalization. It's actually very rare. And it just like, it's terrorizing to not know if you're going to be able to go back to school the next semester, if you're going to come home and your parents are going to be there, if there's a police checkpoint and you're, you could be taken in simply for a routine stop. Mm. So that, that type of life is a life I would not wish on anyone. Right. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's traumatizing. Like I, I'm, I still bear the wounds of my years as an undocumented person, and um, yeah, being a being an undocumented student, you don't get in-state tuition, you can't find federal financial aid, you are constantly hiding this this secret that you assume, right? Like you are, you right. assume you're carrying this big burden, this weight of this unspeakable thing that really you couldn't control. So my sign yesterday at the um, A Day Without Immigrants said, so my family came here illegally in 1998. Since then, my mom has kept your families fed as your local baker. My dad has fixed your cars and changed your tires, saving many of your lives. My sisters and I have made your classrooms more woke and your parties more lit. <laughs> You're lucky it's only a day without immigrants. So, yeah, like, yes, I know you. I know you mentioned um, while we were talking about this podcast activism, mm-hmm. and like, a lot of people are wondering and ask me, how do I get plugged in? Like, what do I do? How? Like, how can I support you or like people like you? And, um, I am really going to plug like local organizations. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people are focusing on national orgs, but local orgs are doing this work and have been doing this work. Um, so there are a lot of like rapid response teams, community defense work, um, that you can get plugged into, right? Attend a rally at rallies. There are signup sheets everywhere. Just put your names on all the signup sheets. People are passing around the sign-up sheets, add your name, mm. get plugged in, get those emails and like, just join the work that's been happening for years. And I saw yesterday, or maybe it was like a couple of days ago, um, Alva Bogado is a popular Latinx uh, journalist and blogger and whatnot. And she was tweeting out a lot of organizations. So like if people just go to find her Twitter and go through her like Twitter story from a few days ago, um, there, yeah, there are lots of opportunities for you to get involved, but the local is best. And I would just say too, for activists who are maybe new getting into a movement, um, like not to, to discourage people's activities, but if you get plugged into somewhere local that the work's already been getting done, then you can find out where you're most useful right now and not, get in the way. Like, I don't want to, I don't know how else to say that other than just like, I understand there are a lot of new people coming into movements right now. And there are a lot of different issues that are being mobilized at the same time. And it's going to take a lot of patience for the like old head activists who've been in this game to kind of bring new people in. We need new people to understand that you're new. And there have been people who know like these questions that you're asking that are like so new to you have been asked and answered so many other times. And so, yeah, we get it. There's a lot of stress going on, but just as a little FYI, get involved with what's already been happening and learn the, not the hierarchy of the local leadership of the, like the local movement, but learn the, like the, the flavor of it, right? Learn what's going on in your local community because we need people who are there and willing to help. But if you become the center because you keep asking how you can help, <laughs> then you're, then you're, then you're getting in the way. Right. And like, so it's a very delicate balance, but like, I'm just going to throw that out there because we have decided to make this podcast one of the little sites, one of the nodes in the resistance. Um, like how can we be a resistant podcast as much as possible? Right. So we're trying to give out advice. We'll talk about activism, advice and strategies. And so, yeah, you heard it from me here first. So that way you don't, when you don't hear it from someone when you're actually at a rally and you get offended or something, just know there've been a lot of people doing this work. 
for a long time because this is not brand new. This is just intensified with Donald Trump. Yeah. And don't think you're going to like save the world. Like you're not going to save the world. We can't like one of us is not going to come in and magically find this solution. Right. Like we have been having these conversations. We know there's a like we can only do so much. So find that niche. Find that thing that you can do locally and make that happen. Just like plug in, plug in. That's it. Plug in. I think that's a good place to stop. Um, If we keep talking about this, I'll just be depressed for the rest of the day, (laughs) which uh, every day in the, in the Trump age is another, another day to kind of duck and like, you know, fend off whatever's flying at your head. um, The new news. So, um, I think this one was like a really urgent, 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 urgent issue, and I can't stress it enough because it does have the kind of invisibility that some U.S. citizens can stick their head in the sand about this and not even know that it's happening. Um, <laughs> this is really a time for like solidarity, right? When people are in a numerical minority, they need everyone to pay attention to what's happening to them, right? And so, like, there's such a responsibility on the privileged to wake up, right? Get woke and and alert and, like, stop. I know, we're already there. If you're already listening to this podcast, you probably are already more awake than not awake. But, Barbara, thank you so much for taking time to come and talk to us about these very important and urgent issues. Thank you. Thank you for creating this space. Bye. 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 And thanks again to Barbara Sostaita from the University of North Carolina. Um, PhD student um, in religious studies, um, former undocumented student um, and advocate now and activist around issues of migration um, and community making, Latinx community building right, and community making generally. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, we talked about ways to plug in, ways to get involved. Go online, look up new sanctuary movements in your city, in your town. Um, see if there are bills coming down the pike in your state that are going to try to like deputize local police forces or public officials of various ways, like we talked about, to become part of Donald Trump's immigration police task force in this in the country. Um, you know, go to your local homeless shelter and ask them, are they prepared? Do they know what they're going to do when ICE shows up and is trying to take out people who are eating in their facility, right? These are ways that you can start to, to activate and be activist around these urgencies, but it's going to take place in the local community. Um, it's going to have to take place in the local community. Well, friends... I bid you all my fondest uh, hopes for some peace and for a tranquil and flourishing life Um, coming to you in the midst of the resistance underneath the Trump campaign. We're still here underneath the Trump presidency. We're still here and always already will always already be here perhaps um waiting out the resistance on the other end when it ends so until then friends have an always already day Hi everyone, it's John here, and I'm uh, here with a little special extra for you. Um, what an incredible conversation between James and Barbara. And now we'd like to bring you something a little bit different, a little bit outside the usual uh, Always Already podcast programming, and that is a audio response to our previous text discussion episode. If you think all the way back to January, because it's been a long time, because we're all overwhelmed and busy and resisting Trump and overwhelmed by neoliberal academia, 
But back in January, myself, Emily, Rachel, recorded a podcast on Martin Koenig's The Emotional Logic of Capitalism. That was suggested to us by Nicholas Kiersey, and uh, we're now happy to feature an audio response to that episode from Nicholas Kiersey. So Nicholas Kiersey is Associate Professor of Political Science at Ohio University. He runs the Occupy IR Theory blog at OccupyIRTheory.info. He's on Twitter at OccupyIRTheory, where we originally got connected with him in the first place, if I remember correctly. And he's also one of the hosts of the Fully Automated Podcast, a podcast they describe as a show for people interested in power, resistance, and critical thinking. And that, to us, sounds like a podcast that you, listeners to the Always Already podcast, would also be interested in. So we suggest you check out Nicholas Kiersey and his uh, cohort over at the Fully Automated Podcast, and check out his blog, check him out on Twitter, and uh, enjoy this response to um, our discussion of Martin Koenig's Emotional Logic of Capitalism. Hello, thank you for inviting me to uh, make a guest comment on your podcast uh, about this fascinating book, Martin Koenig's The Emotional Logic of Capitalism. I really enjoyed your episode. Uh, as someone who has really struggled with this book, uh, your conversation helped me to feel a little bit better about some of my own questions and unresolved issues with the text. In your discussion, you identified some specific tensions in the text, and those are worth recapitulating. But before I get into those specific issues, I should perhaps just say something about my own work and why I find Koenig so useful. Uh, now, by training, I guess you could say I'm an international relations theorist. I also dabble in international political economy. And one observation I have is that while work in my field has been very good in terms of describing the technical aspects of austerity, the mechanisms by which it has been applied, etc., it hasn't been very good in terms of understanding power in any sort of quotidian sense. One of the better works by Mark Blythe, for example, is still very much rooted in the idea that in order to explain today's austerity, we need to look at the genealogy of its technical prescriptions and look at how these ideas were taken up and applied by elites. So there's very much this idea that austerity is a story that takes place in a very specific political realm, populated by intellectuals and politicians. The domain of everyday life isn't really examined. Nowhere does Blythe explain to us, for example, how neoliberal consciousness might have come to be so willingly internalized by the populations these elites govern, something that I'm interested in my own work because I'm looking at the case of Irish austerity specifically. Um, so for me, then, this is really where the value of someone like Konings really becomes apparent. He's one of the few people in the field who is, I think, really rising to the challenge of answering this question about the practical side of neoliberalism. Konings' big complaint with scholars like Blythe is the fact that they seem to share this sort of Polanyian mindset. The market itself is mere instrumentality. So really, it's bad ideas in the realm of politics that are the root cause of our problems. As Konings puts it, such scholars are possessed of a paradoxically economistic account. They see the market as an abstraction, a cold fiction that exists only by virtue of an all-too-human irrationality. For Konings, however, neoliberalism isn't just a technical discourse circulating in the political realm. It's something that exists by virtue of an emotional investment that comes from the quotidian experience of life in the marketplace itself. Now, as you guys noted in your episode, there are definitely some issues with Koning's approach. In your commentary, for example, you raised the question of whether affect is exhausted by this notion of constitutive relating. Now, like yourselves, I don't necessarily have a problem with the idea that constitutive relating should be part of the story. But you get the sense that Koning sees our everyday fixation with neoliberal values as a kind of an accident. Uh, this is quite apparent in his understanding of our wounded attachment uh, to iconic money. Konings doesn't really cite Foucault here, but to me he definitely seems to be picking up on Foucault's distinction, or rather discussion, of the Christian pastoral. In his governmentality lectures, uh, Christianity didn't like the moral relativism of idolatrous religions, so it developed in its place the icon, a mundane technology in Koenig's terms of abstract representation, which invited the subject not so much to worship a truth, but to develop an intuitive, metaphor-based relationship to an infinite and ultimately unknowable God. 
Well, for Konings, capitalist money sort of inherits this abstract power, uh, this confessional power even, despite its self-evident nature as a social construct, money has this same paradoxical capacity to sustain faith, even though it's only a symbol, except now it's not an investment in an infinite God, but an investment in the redemptive potential of a life in speculation. So this is, I think, Koning's key uh, insight. Money is the iconic means by which constitutive relating takes place in capitalism. What was seen previously by the Polanians as the mere instrumentality of the marketplace is now seen as something that solicits a kind of subjectivity. And it's for this reason that it won't be sufficient to do the work that Blythe does, that is simply to expose neoliberalism as a kind of fraud. Icons, uh, says Koning's, may begin life as speculative, actively produce symbolic condensations, which must then struggle on the field of discourse to achieve dominance as the moral indexes by which we orient our daily lives. But successful icons are powerful things indeed. They have become the shorthand, self-evident signs that the, and this I think is key, Uh, that the autonomous regions of the brain, he says, recognize quickly and which can therefore guide our habits and instincts as we go through our daily lives. They're kind of like moral traffic lights, I suppose. They're so universally obeyed that we have no choice really but to live our lives by them. So for Konings then, the icon is this confessional device generating the moral dispositions that make certain discourses more likely to bear fruit. And for me, actually, this is kind of a key insight that Foucault's lectures on neoliberalism were missing. Foucault had intuited back in the sort of late 70s uh, a core paradox of neoliberalism, which claims that the entrepreneurial subject both simultaneously is and is also in the process of becoming. Neoliberalism, of course, was a response to classical liberal political economy, but denied uh, what classical liberal political economy had had held dear, which was the concept of the economically rational subject. And in this move, neoliberalism realizes it has a problem. Um, If there's no economic subject, how can you have a free market? So, says Foucault, neoliberalism attempts to resolve this paradox through uh, a a concept that it invents, human capital. Subjected to the right policies, human capital is a kind of pre-subjective potential that can be made to accept itself as an economic subject or homo economicus in practically every facet of its life. But beyond this, what I think Foucault maybe missed or somehow failed to see was the sheer range of ways that practical or lived neoliberalism might produce an effective impulse towards what we have today, which seems to be a much more vindictive type of governmentality, i.e. austerity. And for me, this is where Konings, I think, offers a way to start thinking, or linking rather, Foucault's insights about neoliberal biopolitics to a much more disciplinary mode. Now, I want to be clear, Konings himself doesn't seem to want to go quite this far. In his analysis, he seems content to linger with the idea of money as a kind of tragic attachment. The power of money lies in its essentially paradoxical nature. Precisely because it is nothing, an unknowable God, our relationship to money is by definition imminent or confessional. In Konings' hands, then, neoliberal desire is a kind of tragic accident, Thus, for example, he addresses the rise of the populist neoliberal movements like America's Tea Party and the moral redemption it seeks in a radically free marketplace. But such paradoxical orientations should not surprise us, says Konings. Capitalism, after all, as the society of radically autonomous money, already primes us to engage with money in a non-idolatrous fashion, respecting its its ability to convey value while suppressing hope for any magic redistributions of wealth. With the advent of neoliberal financialization, however, the capitalist subject becomes even more compelled to pursue its moral perfection before money, and in times of financial crisis, this paradoxical attachment becomes all the more stark and tragic. We tend to double down on the logic of money to become narcissistic, demanding ever more vigilance and self-control on the parts of ourselves and of others. Uh, For me, however, I suppose this is the point where I feel there's a kind of accidental condescension in Konings. Ultimately, he sees neoliberal capitalism as a kind of unfortunate accident bound up in our effective relationship to money. 
Indeed, in this sense, there's actually a kind of residual Polanyism in Konings himself. We're stuck in a kind of voluntary servitude to the icon. He's basically saying, if only we could fix our affect, we'd be okay. But there's a glimmer of insight in Konings that I kind of wish he'd picked up further, and that is this idea, which he doesn't really elaborate, of the successful icon as something which works by directly signaling, as I sort of suggested earlier on, the autonomic nervous system, rather like the habitual way we respond to a traffic light. For Konings, money is the essential traffic light of capitalism. It is that through which the capitalist subject is signaled on a quotidian basis to orient his or herself and to act. But arguably it is Lazarato, someone whose work you've addressed in actually another one of your podcasts, who I think can be helpful here by showing us that this relationship is not really an accident at all. This is Lazarato's challenge to Konings, I suppose. Rather, it is something that is essential for the reproduction of capitalism, capitalist value. Yeah, It is something that is essential if the capitalist expropriation of value is to be continued. Like Konings, Lazzarato is interested in effective traffic lights, but he describes them in terms of capitalist control and expropriation. In his book, which I think was the one you talked about on your show, Signs and Machines, Lazzarato argues that austerity is a kind of targeting of the autonomic body for the purposes of restoring value. Effective expropriation is a stake in the sustaining of valorization, he says, because it passes an ever greater share of the cost of financialization into the sphere of everyday life. This is clear, for example, in the case of the unemployed who are subjected to the dispotiefs of austerity, which of course sort of put surveillance on the body and, and adjudicate over its uh, daily activities. And also in that then have the power to determine, and I'm using, um, going to use Lazzarato's words here, um, both their possible or probable action as well as their possible or probable statements. Uh, now, what does that mean? I think it means that on the one hand, the discourses of neoliberal governmentality call on the unemployed to become better confessional subjects of neoliberal value, subjecting themselves to further education, unpaid internships and the like. On the other they are now part of this non-discursive system of unemployment as well. They are part of an unemployment rate, a rate of successful internship completion, etc., all of which signal to the unemployed that they are now merely technical quantities, a measure of the cost of labor's availability or of labor's readiness. And, of course, these are dehumanizing designations, right? But they are also deadly important. Um, for a nation's recovery from financial crisis, for example, because international ratings agencies pay very close attention to such things. So in this sense, the unemployed are in fact kind of employed, and they're employed precisely because they're caught in this structural double bind between the command to retrain and the life of an insecure and personally conceived reserve laborer. So I think the contrast between Konings and Lazarato is quite stark, but also helps us to maybe understand why reading Konings, you know, we have that sort of sense of dissatisfaction with the notion of constitutive relating, which you guys identified in your commentary, even though they're talking about kind of the same thing. Konings, for his part, is correct, I think, to argue that constitutive relating can be achieved by both conscious and effective means. But the critical point that's missing is any sense in which these forms of constitutive relating might also be a stake in the reproduction of capitalism. Whereas for Lazzarato, the asignifying signs of austerity function as a kind of control mechanism for closing the very possibility of departing from the axiom of autonomous money and therefore guaranteeing the recovery of value, or at least in theory, right? Of course, things might not go capitalism's way. Presumably, there's some resistance. I think you know we can talk more about that another time. But um, the point being that it's not, it's not really that austerity so much is this tragic subjection of the mind and body as it is a form of disciplinary power on labor and something that guarantees the continuity of expropriation. So thanks so much for this chance to respond to your show. I really liked it. It was very provocative. And uh, keep up the good work. Take care. Bye-bye.
All right, everyone, thank you for joining us on another episode of the Always Already Podcast, which is created by James Paoloni Jr., John McMahon, Emily Crandall, Rachel Brown, and B. Altman. Visit our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us texts you'd like us to discuss, advice questions to answer, and dreams to analyze to alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at alwaysalreadyon. Like us on Facebook. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a good review on iTunes. Uh, you can throw some money our way over at patreon.com slash alwaysalreadypodcast to help with recording equipment and such. And uh, we have a bunch of thank yous for this episode. We would like to thank Leah Dion for her Static Loops, which of course is the intro music. We would like to thank Bad Infinity for providing us the order of things, which you heard at various points throughout the episode. And of course, Thank you to B for Landslide, which you're listening to right this very second. We'd also like to thank our Patreon subscribers in the always already circle of trust. That would be Matthew, Catherine, and Matthew. In the Tumblr BFF parentheses from Canada level, that would be Steve. In our friend of the podcast level, that would be Angel. And in our they didn't claim an award, but we would like to thank them anyway category, that would be Bunny and Laika. Remember, you can too can get a shout out on the Always Ready podcast by sending us money via patreon.com slash alwaysreadypodcast. So thank you again to our guests. Thank you, our lovely, wonderful, smart, critical, resistant audience for listening. And uh, until next time, which we hope will be not so long, uh, have an always already day. John, I don't know where we're going to cut this out, so I'm going to let you figure it out, and...